Well, good morning, West Ridge. It's 2023. Yeah, and uh, just in case, I want you to know that uh, if you didn't make a New Year's resolution, you're not really on that path. It's not too late. For those of you who are perfectionists, the first seven days are gone. Those are black marks. All the pressure's off. You can start now. And those of you who are procrastinators, you're far, far from December 31st when you're supposed to do it. So, you know, jump in. It's all, it's all, it's, you're ready to go. So we're starting a new message series today called Jesus Can Change Your Year. And this is essentially a, a message series to kind of help move us forward in engaging and moving forward in our spiritual journey. So um, I just want to begin with a, a quick story about me. So I was fresh out of seminary. I was working as an intern in a church in the southern suburbs here of Chicagoland. And uh, the guy that I was working with, the pastor at this new church, he was a very talented, wise, articulate, just a really great kind of leader. And for whatever reason, uh, he had entrusted me with some pretty significant responsibilities in this new church, even though I was only going to be there temporarily and I was new, uh, giving me some pretty significant job responsibilities. And from time to time, we would stop and we would kind of assess things and both how I was doing in my role and how things were happening at the church overall. About two months in, we had this little sit-down, face-to-face meeting, and I don't know what all I said, but I was pretty critical of some of the other people who were working on the team and kind of even picking apart some of the things that were happening in the church. And I'd gone off, I guess, on a pretty decent kind of rant. And finally, I stopped probably to catch a breath. And this guy looks at me, not much older than me, but looks at me and he says, I guess the question is, can Scott Alexander live in an imperfect world? Yeah, there's a wake-up call. So I can admit I was pretty clueless back then, obviously. But I knew that what he really was asking was, how could you be so arrogant and oblivious as to think that you know what should be done and who should be doing it when you are the most inexperienced and evidently the most arrogant person on the team. But he said it so nicely. <laughs> you know, questions are extremely powerful. And questions, when they're asked at the right time in the right way, can do wonders for helping you to challenge your way of thinking or clarify your values. They're the kind of things that can force you to verbalize who you really are. And ultimately, the right questions can truly change your life. So today, we're going to be looking at an encounter that Jesus had with someone who was asked a very pointed question. So Jesus' ministry when he was here on this earth was a three-year run with this group of 12 and the people who were with him were apprentices to him. And the intention was that as Jesus 
spent this time, they would be prepared to continue his mission and his ministry after he was gone from this earth. And Jesus' approach was a very hands-on kind of approach. So his kind of teaching was teaching by doing, and these guys who were called disciples would watch and learn, and after they had seen what Jesus did, then they became engaged in doing the exact same things. So as we come to the story that we're going to look at today, Jesus has now spent three years traveling his homeland. And he's been teaching people, he's been feeding people, and on occasion he even performs some kind of miraculous healing. So Jesus has been traveling for three years and he's been going north and south and north and south up and down this country of Israel, and he's now at the end of this three-year run. He's heading south for the last time as he goes down to Jerusalem where he's going to be executed. He's going to die by crucifixion. At this point in his ministry, Jesus is literally 15 miles and seven days away from the end of his ministry and the end of his life. So I want to share with you a story of this encounter that happens as Jesus is traveling and he's leaving the city of Jericho just 15 or so miles north of Jerusalem. Here's what happens. Then they reached Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples left town, a large crowd followed him. A blind beggar named Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, was sitting beside the road. When Bartimaeus heard that Jesus of Nazareth was nearby, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Be quiet, many of the people yelled at him. But he only shouted louder, son of David, have mercy on me. When Jesus heard him, he stopped and said, tell him to come to me. So they called the blind man. Cheer up, they said. Come on, he's calling you. Bartimaeus threw aside his coat, jumped up, and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. My rabbi, the blind man said, I want to see. And Jesus said, go, for your faith has healed you. Instantly the man could see, and he followed Jesus down the road. I spent about 16 years of my life in the country of Haiti. And there are a few things that have impacted the way that I see the world and changed my worldview, like my experience there. But it didn't just change my worldview. It really changed how I see and hear these stories in the Bible. Because when I hear stories of people farming with hand tools and riding donkeys and cooking over charcoal and fishing with nets. I don't have to conjure up some sort of image because I saw people living like that almost daily. And then when we come to this story and I read about this man who was born blind, I can't help but be taken back to those days in Haiti when I saw someone, an old man, who was born blind and he had to beg for every scrap of food that he got. But there were no normal modern tools like we would think of for those who are blind. So for him to get around, he was led 
by a young boy, a young boy that looked like he should have been in school. He was led around by this young boy through town, place to place, probably knowing where to stop to talk to the regulars so they would give him food for, and something to eat. I can't help but, but think when I, when I look at this story of Bartimaeus or when I think of that man in, in Haiti, I, I can't help but think how lonely it must have been to be in his shoes. I saw on my newsfeed this week, I saw the story that Chicago is the 24th loneliest city in America. And the people who had written this story had sort of combed through census data, and they saw that 40% of Chicago residents live in single-person households. Now, I don't have any doubt that living in a single-person household probably has some impact on how you feel about being lonely. But here's what I know, and here's what you know. You can be around people all the time and still be lonely. Or you can have a lot of time to yourself, considerable amount of time to yourself, and not be lonely. You see, I think the truth is, what we know about loneliness is this. It doesn't matter so much about how many people you're around as much as it matters do you have meaningful relationships in your life? So if we're honest, some of us could probably say that the people we're with in our home and at work and in the neighborhood, we like to get away from them, to be honest. But that doesn't stop us from feeling lonely. Because the loneliness that we feel sometimes comes from not really having someone that we can talk to and know that we feel heard. Someone that we can talk to beyond things like the weather and the news and the recent holidays. So Bartimaeus, when you look at him in this story, if he was lonely, it certainly was not because he did not have people around him. As this happens, he's in the middle of a pretty significant crowd of people. But when you think about what the people said and did in this story, when the people were saying, hey, hey, be quiet, don't, don't bother the rabbi, it's not quite so hard to imagine that he probably could have felt extremely lonely. And even when they are nice to him, it's because someone popular accepted him first. When Jesus said, hey, 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 tell this guy to come and talk to me. Oh, the people were so nice. Cheer up, Bartimaeus, he wants to talk to you. So Jesus and Bartimaeus are now face to face. And in this moment, I, I have to believe that Bartimaeus would have felt like he's won the lottery. Because he knows Jesus, at least by reputation, because he calls him by name, and he knows that this man who is known as the son of David has the power to work miracles. And when they're face-to-face, -face, Jesus and Bartimaeus, Jesus asks a powerful question. He says, what do you want me to do for you? 
Let me ask you, if you were face-to-face with Jesus and Jesus asked you that, what would you say? What would you say if Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? Especially when you consider the things that many of us are facing in our life because some of us are consumed with worry about the health of someone we love. Some of us are heartbroken because every single day we feel the impact of living with a mistake that someone else made. There are some of us who have a son or a daughter or a friend or someone in our circle whose lives are being destroyed by addiction. There are some of us, because our world is in such a financial mess, we're just not sure where to go next. And so I would say, what would you ask? And maybe more importantly is, have you? Have you actually said to Jesus, like, have mercy on me because I'm facing something big here. I need help. So back to our story with Bartimaeus. Now, maybe it's just me. I'll be honest. Maybe it is, but when Jesus asks that question, it feels like a strange question to me. I mean, the guy is blind, and because of that, he's a beggar. At first blush, it seems like that question could almost be mean. Now, picture this. This is what I mean. Imagine a first responder coming up onto a bloody accident, and the first responder comes to the person who's bleeding and says, what would you like me to do for you? I mean, really, you're thinking, really, Jesus? Like, isn't it kind of obvious You really have to ask. And what you notice is when Bartimaeus is asked this question, he doesn't say, give me a minute. Let me think about that. Bartimaeus quickly responds, I want to see. And what's remarkable is Jesus makes him see. Jesus says to him, go, Your faith has healed you. I think it's difficult for us to imagine how much Bartimaeus' life would have changed in that moment when he went from a lifetime of blindness to having his eyes open and being able to see the world. But, But, if Bartimaeus received sight and nothing else in his life changed, what would his life really be like? I mean, it seems like it would be like mine or maybe yours. And what I mean is, when Bartimaeus got home, how long would it take before his life would have been very much the same as before except with eyesight? Not to diminish that, but let me ask you, if Jesus miraculously resolved whatever it is that you would ask, that in an instant it would be taken away or fixed, Wouldn't something else happen next month or next year? Here's what's remarkable in this story to me is Jesus gave Bartimaeus something far more than he asked for or even imagined. 
Jesus doesn't change our lives by resolving our most recent problem or fixing the most recent issue that we name. Jesus changes something much more fundamental than that for us. And if you think about what Bartimaeus actually got in this interaction, the answer is easy. He got his eyesight, right? He did, but he got so much more. And God is pretty good at this kind of thing. As a matter of fact, God almost always does things. When we ask him, we'll do things above and beyond what we even knew to think or ask. There's a verse in the Bible, and I love this specific version because the message version, it just puts things in the most everyday kind of language. And in Ephesians 3.20, here's what it says. God can do anything, you know? far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams. So here's what I want to say about this moment with Bartimaeus is there are four words in that story that we might have just glossed over, four words that you might have missed. And you know what they are? At the end, after Jesus says, your faith has healed you, and Bartimaeus is like new life, it says, and he followed Jesus. That's what changed everything. Because Jesus gave him something that he probably would have never thought to ask. And gave him something that was good beyond his wildest imagination. Because Jesus gave him community. He was now a part of this, this group of followers of Jesus and Jesus gave him meaningful relationships so that no matter what happens in Bartimaeus' life, he's got people around him that matter. So the following month when Bartimaeus loses his job or a year from now when Bartimaeus gets that terrible diagnosis, it doesn't matter what happens to him, he's not going to be alone. The community that Jesus started, this group of followers, it, it's a little bit hard for me to imagine what it would have been like in the day of Bartimaeus to really follow in the footsteps of Jesus physically, to be around him and actually hear him teach and to see him face to face and to watch him perform miracles. I'm thinking, I mean, isn't that the best of the best? And doesn't it seem like it would have certainly gone downhill from there when Jesus is no longer on this earth? But when you look at the story of this community of people, you see something truly remarkable. Truly remarkable. Because when Jesus leaves this earth and leaves here physically, he empowered not one person, not 12 people, not a few people, but Every single one of the people who choose to follow Jesus are empowered with something called the Holy Spirit that God gives to us. And that's what changed everything because people were now control, controlled by God living in them. And here's the story that describes what it was like in the days when this community of people were just starting and, and living together. 
If you look in the book of Acts, it tells the story of this new movement called the church and what life was like. We're going to go to Acts chapter 2. Listen to this description. It says, All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, each day, the Lord added to the fellowship those who were being saved. Now, when you jump forward a couple chapters, there's more description of what this life was like. Listen to this from Acts chapter 4. It says, all the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. People were signing up by the thousands. And I mean that literally. On day one, when the church first opened, and I don't mean opened a building, but when the church first launched, and Peter stood up and told the people, hey, here's what you're signing up for. 3,000 people said, I'm in, all in. And very soon after, it was 5,000, and I'm assuming after that, they could no longer keep track of the count. And why? What was it that was so magnetic and so attractive about this community? Well, it's pretty easy to see because the people who were hungry were no longer hungry, and the people who were sick were cared for, and the people who didn't have homes got homes, and the people who were lonely had relationships, and the people who were just aimless and didn't know what to do with their life, they had a cause that they were going to live for. No matter what you needed, you were loved and cared for, and accepted. And that's what Jesus gave Bartimaeus that he didn't even know to ask for. That's why people were rushing to get in. So when you hear those words and we read that story from the book of Acts, you're probably thinking, yeah, but that doesn't seem like the description of the church that I know. And you're right. I think the church many times is far, far from the ideal that God established of how we would live. But when the church is working and it's operating like God intended, there is nothing better than that kind of community. Wouldn't you want to be a part of that? No invitation necessary. If you heard about it, you're going to come knocking. And you may say that the church has lost something along the way, but I can tell you this. You can still see glimpses of that kind of community. And here's what I mean. Right here at Westridge, 
you know, my, my go-to people, the people that I know, well, it's, it's Alan and Amy and Lindsay and Terry and Stephen and Kurt, because those are the people in my small group, and they know me. They know what's going on in my life. And if something happens, I probably wouldn't even need to ask, and they would be there helping with whatever came up. And in those moments, I feel just a glimpse of that kind of community, the meaningful relationships that we all wish we had. Here's here's my challenge to you today. If you want that kind of meaningful relationship, and I don't know who wouldn't, take the risk of stepping into finding community here We have lots of, we do our best to kind of create opportunities where you can find those meaningful relationships. We're starting new groups this month. There are new community groups. There's a grief group. There's a divorce care group. There are men's groups. There are women's groups. It's not too late to get started in making a step toward meaningful relationships. Here's what I want to say to you about wrapping this up. We've talked about this idea of community. And this kind of community that, that we describe today is not just found, it's built. And I'm inviting you to come back next week because we're going to talk about how a group of people just like us can build a community just like that.